If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 24 to 30, and then we're going to jump down and look at verses 36 to 43. All right, this is God's word for us this morning. Matthew 13, 24 to 30, 36 to 43. Jesus put another parable before them, saying this, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jump down to verse 36. Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is God's word for us this morning. It's a somewhat straightforward story Jesus tells here. There's a man who has a field and he sows good seed in the field. While his men are sleeping, which doesn't seem to be Uh, that they're in dereliction of duty, they are just sleeping because it's nighttime. While his servants, his men are sleeping, an enemy comes to the field and sows weeds among the wheat. When the seeds sprout, the problem is evident. And so the servants come to the master and they said, Master, you planted good seed. What, What happened here? And the master responds, an enemy has done this. And so the servants decide, hey, we're going to fix this. Do you want us to go back into the field and pull up the weeds? And the master says, no, because if you go to try to pull up the weeds, you're probably going to pull up the wheat as well. Uh, The word actually in the Greek that gets translated as weeds probably refers to a kind of grass that they had in the ancient world that looked a lot like wheat. It was called darnel. 
And the problem was, if you took Darnell and took the grains from Darnell and made bread with it, you would get sick. Uh, so it was a plant that looked like wheat, but wasn't actually wheat. And so the master says, don't try to go figure out which is Darnell and which is wheat. Instead, let them both grow together until the harvest, and then you're going to gather the weeds and burn them, and we'll gather the wheat and bundle it and put it in the barn. Jesus helps us because he doesn't just leave the story there. He actually goes and explains it, as we just saw, in verses 36 to 43. He tells us what everything stands for, what everything represents. Jesus is the man who plants the good seed. The field, Jesus tells us, is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom, those who love and follow God. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, those who hate God and rebel against his rule in the world. The enemy is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, which just means the end of time, the end of history. And the reapers are the angels who are sent by Jesus to gather the harvest. Uh, The weeds at that time are burned in judgment and the wheat is gathered into the master's house. Again, a fairly straightforward story, uh, biblically speaking, but this story, I think, has profound implications. Because I think this is a story about the story of the world. Jesus is telling us in this story the whole story of history. He's telling us about God's good world and how it has been corrupted by evil and how God is planning to fix it. And so what I want to look at this morning as we reflect on these verses is I want to think about evil. We're going to talk a little bit about what evil is and where it comes from. We're going to think about our expectations about evil in the world. And then we're going to think about what is our response to evil in the world. So we're going to think about evil, expectations about evil in the world, and what our response to evil ought to be. The passage tells us a little bit of where evil comes from. You see it there in verse 28. The master says, when the servants wonder what has happened, the master says simply, an enemy has done this. One commentator says, this is the Bible's only answer to the question of where evil comes from. We see at the beginning, obviously, of Genesis, we see Satan uh, disguised as a serpent who comes and deceives Adam and Eve. But the Bible doesn't really give us much more about that. So as we think about the problem of evil, which is a philosophical problem about where does evil come from, here is what the Bible tells us. Evil has come into God's good world because an enemy has done this. And to be honest, it's kind of frustrating that the Bible doesn't give us much more than that. We have deeper questions. We might like to know more about why God permits this and how God permits this and how it all works together. But what the Bible tells us without any equivocation is that evil is part of God's world now because an enemy has done this. But this passage also tells us something about the, the nature 
of evil. It doesn't just tell us that it comes from an enemy. It tells us that that evil is not a creative force. Evil is basically vandalism. Evil takes God's good things and just distorts them or twists them. It doesn't create new things. It can only vandalize the good things that God has made. It is weeds in a field. It is The field is fine. The crop is fine. It is adding something corrupt to what is already good. You might notice here the enemy is apparently not strong enough to fight the master directly. It doesn't seem like they are equal and opposite forces. All the enemy can do is go and vandalize the master's field in the darkness. One uh, philosopher describes evil as a cancer of the good. It is taking what is good and distorting it and twisting it and vandalizing it. That is what evil is. We see that here in this story. So what does that mean for our expectations about evil in the world? Well, this parable tells us something very simple. There are two kingdoms that are growing in this world. There is the kingdom of God, which is where God's people love God and follow God's rule. And there's the kingdom of man. And the kingdom of man is comprised of those who are opposed to God, who hate God, and who rebel against God's rule in the world. Two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And this is important for us to understand because there are tons and tons of misunderstandings about the nature of these two kingdoms. Friends, the biblical expectation is not that the kingdom of man takes over and things get worse and worse and worse. Nor is the biblical expectation that the kingdom of God takes over and things get better and better and better. What the biblical expectation is, what this passage is telling us, is that the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God are both in the world, and they are both growing to maturity alongside one another. Both kingdoms grow to maturity. What does that mean for us? One of the things that means is that we expect to see the kingdom of man grow. And as we see the kingdom of man grow, what that means is we will see rebellion against God become more overt. We will see sin be embraced in the world. We will see evil be celebrated in the world. But we also expect to see the kingdom of God grow. If I were to ask you when in history the church or the kingdom of God has grown the fastest, by which I mean more and more people coming to trust Jesus, would you be surprised if I told you that it was today? Like right now. This very second, the kingdom of God is growing faster than at any time in human history. Now, we might be surprised to learn that because the reality is it's just not happening here. It's not happening around us. But the church is exploding 
throughout the world. In places like Africa and South America and Asia, the church is exploding around the world. The kingdom of God is growing even as the kingdom of man is also growing. And as these two kingdoms grow, as they grow to maturity alongside one another, what we expect to see is conflict between them because they are each growing in influence and maturity. And I want you to see that the conflict between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God is not a sign that the kingdom of God is shrinking. It is a sign that the kingdom of God is growing. And I say that because I think a lot of Christians right now have a lot of anxiety about the world. I think everyone actually in our culture has anxiety about the world right now. And and I also think that politicians kind of capitalize on that anxiety. But think about this. It is striking to me that the last two uh, presidential elections... Uh, Both have had slogans that point people, not forward, but backward. You had Make America Great Again, and then you had Build Back Better. Both of these were pointing us backward in some way to some time perhaps in the past when things were better, when things were ideal. And in our cultural moment, what we see happening in the culture around us is Christians are losing power and cultural influence and institutional influence. But what this parable is saying to us and what it is underlining and in bold print saying is that for Christians, there is no golden age we are trying to go back to. There is no time when things were better. For Christians, the way forward is always forward, and the way out is always through. And so even as we might live in a cultural moment where we are losing cultural power and institutional influence, we are reminded again and again, and this parable does it for us, that power and influence were never our hope. We wait for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what does that mean for our response to evil in the world? If we expect to see these two kingdoms growing up together, if we expect that there will be conflict between these two kingdoms, how do we as God's people respond to evil in the world? One of our first temptations is the same temptation that the servants had. Did you know what they said? Lord, or Master, there's, there's weeds growing up. Do you want us to go and pull them? Do you want us to go and fix the problem? Jesus says, no. You can't fix the problem. You can't eradicate evil this side of glory. In fact, if you try to eradicate evil this side of glory, you are going to do more harm than good. Because the parable presupposes we are not as good at figuring out how to fix evil as we think we are. It's, it's clear, right? We, we mistake the wheat and the weeds. The things we think might be helping might not actually be helping because we are and we remain 
sinners. We are not capable of fixing the world. And it's important for us to realize that if we could fix the world by just doing the right thing, the gospel would be unnecessary. And it's not unnecessary. But don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that the gospel is calling us to some kind of passivity in the world. The gospel's not doing that at all. Instead, I think this passage shows us that what we are called to as God's people is humility and hope and peace. Humility, hope, and peace. Think about humility for a minute. There's humility in what the master tells us. Because the master tells us, you're not good at figuring out the difference between wheat and weeds. We are not good at seeing what is really happening beneath the surface, the places where God is at work. Augustine, the great pastor in North Africa in the early church, writing in the 4th and 5th centuries, he said one time about this passage, uh, those that are weeds today may be wheat tomorrow. And it's helpful for us just to remember again as we are thinking about humility that what the gospel is telling us, what the gospel reminds us of over and over and over again is that every healthy stalk of wheat began as a weed. We were weeds. That pushes us to humility. Because it reminds us that there is no one here, there is no one in this room, there is no one in the world that is so bad. They are beyond the reach of God's grace. And there is no one in the world who is so good. They are not constantly in need of that same grace. This parable pushes us to be humble and to remember the fact that we are wheat is entirely from God's grace and goodness. But this passage also pushes us to hope as we think about responding to evil. Because it reminds us that evil is dealt with. The evil is ultimately defeated, but ultimately only the master is the one who can deal with it. Now, what we know from the rest of the story of the Bible is that Jesus has delivered the killing blow to sin and evil. And in his death and resurrection, sin and death and evil have been put on notice. They have been defeated, but they are not yet completely removed from the creation. And so what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is telling us he's going to do is he is going to return at the end of the age to finally destroy sin and death and evil. Everything that we do in this life, every time we pursue the common good, every time we love our neighbors, every time we try to help the world flourish by pushing for policies or by just simply caring for those around us, every time we do that, we are doing something that is good. But we are not ultimately destroying evil. We are pruning it. We are cutting it back. We might even remove it from a place for a time, but we are ultimately not the ones who can solve the problem of evil. Only Jesus can. And that's why
Philippi 1 reminds us and underlines for us that at the harvest, it is the master who deals with evil. It is Jesus who returns and pulls evil out of the creation by its roots. And in doing that, the field is not destroyed, but purified and restored. And so, too, will the world not be destroyed, but purified and restored when Christ returns in power. And friends, this gives us peace in the world. This gives us peace in the face of evil. Because in all of the things that happen, note the one thing that is certain. The growth of the seed is never threatened. The growth of the kingdom of God is never threatened by the presence of the weeds. And so we can rest secure because we know that God is at work in the midst of the evil. The kingdom is growing to maturity. And what the passage says, again, underlining for us in bold print that is flashing, is that the kingdom of man poses no greater threat to God than a weed does to a lawnmower. Friends, it is good news. And this means for us that we don't have to be anxious about the world. We don't have to be anxious about the things we see happening around us. We are an ancient people. And we have a story that began before this news cycle. And this story stretches beyond any election, any nation, any empire. And so whether we as God's people awake tomorrow in a position of influence and power, or if we awake tomorrow persecuted by the state, we wake up with the exact same set of responsibilities to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In 412 AD, a pastor in North Africa, uh, whose name was Augustine, was thinking about how to shepherd the church through something that was absolutely unthinkable. To them. And that is, at that time, two years earlier, the world's lone superpower, the eternal city, Rome, which had existed for a thousand years. And not only had it existed for a thousand years, for the last hundred of those years, it had been an explicitly Christian empire. Christianity was the state religion, and that city had fallen. In 410 AD. Think about how disorienting that must have been for the Christians living in the fourth century. This was the empire under which Christ had lived, under which Christ was crucified, which had now seen the expansion of the kingdom to such a point that it had become the official religion of Rome. And that city had been defeated. Can you imagine what Christians at the time were thinking and feeling? They were asking themselves, like, what does this mean for us? And Augustine's answer was a book 
that he ended up writing. He started it in 412 and he finished it in 427 and it's about a thousand pages long. And the book is called The City of God. And Augustine's book reminds Christians then and us today as well, gently but firmly, that Rome was never our hope. That, it, that no nation, no empire can ever be the hope of God's people because we are waiting on another kingdom. This is the last words that Augustine writes in that book. This is the closing thought of that book. Listen to this. Augustine says this. He says, There we shall be still and see. We shall see and we shall love. We shall love and we shall praise. Behold what will be in the end without end. For what is our end but to reach that kingdom which has no end. Friends, we are waiting on a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And what this parable is telling us is this is our story. This is it. This is the story of what is happening around you. This is the story of what is happening on the news. This is the story of what is happening in the world. And this story begins in goodness and ends in glory. And what is ultimately true of this story is what is ultimately true of us. And we see it in verse 43. Because for you, Christian, the long-term worst-case scenario is that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, all because of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess how easy it is for us to fall into anxiety as we look at the world around us. Father, there are times it doesn't even seem like the world we know. And yet we know that you are at work. We know that the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God are growing up together. Father, we pray that you would calibrate our expectations about what life in this world will mean. And we pray that you'll help us to find security not in power and influence, but in the fact that your kingdom goes forth unhindered. Father, be at work in us. Anchor us in this truth and this reality. Make us people of humility and hope and peace. And in so doing, make us good citizens of your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, let's stand and respond by singing together our closing hymn, Be Thou My Vision.